This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS Canine Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I have uh, Michael Kamisic from Sheepdog Guardian back with me. We did a, an intro episode about uh, three or four weeks ago, and as promised, I said that we're going to have him on here pretty regularly, doing some legal updates and some case law updates and just topical things. Um, out of all the people that I work with uh, all over the industry, Mike is one of the most involved. Uh, he still has a leash in his hand. He's going to work every day, uh, working a dog, uh, doing police work. And then he's also doing his uh, website, the Sheepdog Guardian website, which is a, a full-time job, more than a full-time job by by itself. Then he travels everywhere and teaches classes, and he's researching uh, uh, different topics, as well as doing some expert witness stuff. So obviously he doesn't sleep, but uh, I'm going to pick his brain a little bit today because after we did uh, um, our last one, we touched on fentanyl. And that generated a, a couple of discussions that we had over email with a couple other very well-known trainers that are well-versed in it. We were trying to put everybody together. It just didn't uh, work out that we could get everybody scheduled together. So I just got Mike on here. But uh, we're going to talk today about fentanyl and should you imprint on it, should you not, uh, some of the terminology and, and what we're doing with fentanyl as an industry and maybe answer some questions for you. So with that, uh, how are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing great, Jeff. Uh, thanks for having me back on. Um, much appreciated. Absolutely. Happy to have you. I know, uh, like I said, we got a few different uh, questions off our last one, but fentanyl seemed to be um, one of the real timely topics. And uh, I think that in my mind, um, that answer is kind of still evolving. Um, should, should we imprint on it or not? And, and where do we go with that? So uh, I guess I'll start off with uh, you know, just get, kind of give me your background on, on where you're at with fentanyl and uh, and uh, where where you think it's going to evolve to. Yeah. Um, so the, the very first thing that um, I uh, talk about with anybody who asks the question is, first step always has to be is you need to get your prosecutors involved. Um, because the prosecutors are going to ultimately make the determination whether or not they're going to even file charges off of a, um, a dog alert or a dog alert where the dog is imprinted on the odor of fentanyl. Um, so the very first thing is we need to bring our prosecutors into this discussion before um, we, we make any decisions. Um, and then from there we can you know, move forward and, and uh, kind of get a game plan. But kind of on that, the reason that this is becoming such an issue is because fentanyl can be lawfully possessed. So we're kind of in that area uh, with marijuana yeah, in yeah. some of these states. I mean, you know, um, better than, you know, most yeah. uh, being out of Colorado or but. Um, so that's why I always say you need to bring your prosecutors in on this discussion and have a candid discussion of, about um, what the best way to go is here. We are seeing um, it is in the news um, 
uh, front page a lot, these overdoses, fentanyl thing, uh, fentanyl overdoses. Yeah. And so uh, one of the emails that we uh, kind of fielded after our last discussion was kind of the, the topic that, that kind of was, was broached was, well, s- some of our dogs are, are already self-imprinted, mm-hmm. you know, on fentanyl because there's so much fentanyl that um, is present yeah. in uh, in uh, in the operational environment, and therefore the dogs are self-imprinting. So what I think to, to kind of start this topic off, the first thing I think we need to discuss is what is the definition of contraband right and so the academy standards board along with the um american academy of forensic sciences they are well let me back up just a little bit i think we should go through maybe a little background because this issue i think is is going to be coming to a courtroom near you your listeners um so a little background on the scientific community and how they kind of got involved in the canine uh, community. So if we look back to like 1994, Florida International University, Dr. Ken Furton out of there, um, uh, who is just a, really is a great asset to, to our industry. Um, they started researching uh, programs um, along the canine detection line, yeah. right? And they were working with the National Forensic Science uh, Technology Center and um, just looking at the olfactory abilities of the dog. Uh, the, the dogs here and from that um, a couple different steps in there but pretty much from that we have born the scientific working group on dog and orthogonal detector guidelines also known as swig dog which came around in the 2003-ish yeah. uh, area and um, now swig dog was like this think tank of uh, PhDs and attorneys and practitioners, uh, dog trainers, dog handlers from across the United States that kind of came together. And what they did is they they came up with 39 approved guidelines, recommended guidelines for the use of detector dogs um, within the United States. Um, from a, And they really approached it from kind of this scientific um uh, background, yeah, right. So um, now, Swig Dog was around till about 2014, where the um, the funding uh, stopped. The federal funding stopped for it, and from there, it was picked up um, through the National Commission on Forensic Sciences and the National Institute of Standards and Technology, also known as NIST. And from there, uh, we have the Academy Standards Board, also as a, known as ASB, and the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, AAFS, and then finally ANSI, the American National Standards Institute, that have kind of gotten involved um, with this. And what they've pretty much done is they, their, or their goal um, seems to have been is that they're taking these 39 approved guidelines from swig dog and kind of revalidating them from a scientific standpoint and then um reissuing or republishing standards sure and so your your listeners are probably like well where the heck is mike going with this why is this even important for us to, to know well these organizations um pretty much set the standards for 
many things in the criminal justice system. And these are the organizations that our courts actually listen to when it comes to um, uh, scientific sure. standards or things like that. So anybody who's you know driving around with a radar on their dashboard, uh, these organizations wrote the standard for that. You know, if you're driving, you know, your breath test instrument um, that's sitting back at your station house, these, these folks wrote the standards for them. A lot of the forensic sciences, they've written the standards for that. So the courts listen to these people. And so what I always tell people like in our, uh, our uh, seminars that we teach, anybody who's ever made a DUI or a OWI, whatever you call it in your state, um, driving under the influence of alcohol arrest, will understand um, the analogy, and that is when we get up on a motion to suppress or whatever, defend a defense attorney sitting up there, and they ask the, you know, inevitably they, they ask the question, uh, you know, officer, did you administer standardized field sobriety tests? Answer, yes. Well, what's the next thing that the defense attorney does is they open up the NHTSA handbook, the National yeah. Highway Traffic Safety Administration handbook on standardized field sobriety tests, and they kind of go through point by point to ensure that you complied with the standard yeah. right because and the reason that it is it's it's a scientific scientifically validated standard right so um we kind of see these standards kind of coming up in the in the uh, court so everybody should at least be aware that these standards are out there and you know kind of what uh what they're doing now i'm a observer on asb i'm not a voting member so I do um, get to listen in on the conversations and from time to time at least give my input on, yeah. on them. And there's not a whole uh, – the scientific community does work a little bit uh, slow, uh, slower than – well, I can't say they work slower than the government. <laughs> uh, but um, they only have a, a few standards that are published. There's about seven standards that are published. But one of the uh, really important standards that's published is ASB Technical Report 25, um, which talks about, it's from the Dogs and Sensors Committee that talks about terms and definitions. Now, this technical report is really, or was really designed to assist the court um, these technical report uh, technical reports are are really designed to assist the court in terminology and things like that. And what I found is that we just, as canine handlers, as an industry, we don't necessarily speak the same language. Sure. Right. And that and that to me is a problem because the the courts are speaking one language, we're speaking another language. Defense attorneys are speaking a different language. So we all, in my opinion, kind of need to get on the same board uh, board with that. So if we look at Technical Report 25, getting back to contraband, they define it very uh, succinctly as an article or substance that is prohibited by law or regulation within a specific area, which brings us back to our discussion on fentanyl. Yeah. Where fentanyl is – there are um, perfectly lawful reasons why a person might actually possess fentanyl. So we have that issue, and we look at that with our marijuana dogs as well, right? Yeah. Um, in these states where recreational or medical marijuana is legalized, so we kind of go back, kind of go back to that. Um, so that's a really, I think, an important, um, at least, term that you know handlers should yeah. really know what the definition is. 
And um, the other thing is, is odor. When we're talking about um, any substance, uh, narcotic, explosives, uh, human remains, um, those type of things, we're talking about odor, right? And they've defined odor as volatile chemicals that are emitted from a substance that are able to be perceived through olfaction. And they said odor traditionally is referred to as the canine detection of a substance as opposed to scent, where scent has traditionally referred to the canine detection of humans or live humans. So I know it seems like we're splitting hairs here, but um, we really should be on kind of as an industry kind of getting with at least speaking in the same language. So we all understand that. Yeah, and I guess I'll just jump in right there because some of that stuff, you know, as a dog handler, I think, uh, you know, sometimes I, I know, you know, you get kind of a visceral reaction to, you know, I know how to train a dog and I know I can describe it and all that. And I really don't want to follow these geeky scientists. But you mentioned it earlier that the courts are following them. So if we want to have that credibility in the court, this is important stuff to understand and be able to go in there and use the same terminology. Even if it's not that natural for us, it certainly uh, will lend itself to our credibility when we're when we're testifying to this. Oh, I, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, again, when when you know, like going back to the example of you know the attorney, defense attorney, you know, pulling out the NHTSA yeah. uh, handbook, right? It's going to be this. I foresee that this is going to be the same thing. Well, officer, are you familiar with? You know the academy standards board um are you familiar with uh what the national institute of standards and technology are doing it the answer to that is no and they're sitting you know yeah you don't want to be that officer that handler that's sitting there uh, you know answering no i don't know what you know the uh, scientists who the courts listen to are um are doing yeah. within my own industry right yeah and um so the, the, the other thing that I want to just point out is I, I, I think handlers need to be very careful because sometimes uh, we know just enough to get ourselves into trouble when we're testifying, you know, and every once in a while that question will be uh, come across as well. What what um, what odor is your dog actually alerting to? Um, so your dog is trained in cocaine. What what what? Um, yeah. What is the dog actually alerting to in cocaine? What is the dog actually alerting to in marijuana? You know. Yeah. Um, and then we have uh, handlers that um, then kind of step outside of their scope of expertise and start guessing. Yeah. And that really turns uh, turns into a problem. So, um, just kind of to, to lay a little bit of a groundwork and, and basis for this discussion, there are scientifically peer reviewed. There are only three odorants uh volatile organic compounds that have been identified in in particular uh narcotic odors and i think you know officers should be aware of those so uh, we'll start with cocaine again that really is um, uh dr furton yeah um who uh was the one who, uh, chemist who was able to uh, kind of figure this one out and um, what the dogs are alerting to is an odorant, um, at least right now, studies are obviously still ongoing, but um, currently the scientific peer-reviewed 
um, studies say that the dogs are alerting to a um, byproduct in cocaine called methylbenzoate. Right. Uh-huh. And uh, that came through the uh, his studies with uh, currency and, you know, whether um, all currency in the United States is contaminated, like the DEA yeah. had said back in the you know uh, early to mid 90s. So we know that for sure. The odorant in cocaine um, uh, is methylbenzoate. And um, what we also know is methamphetamines, um, the odorant that the dog alerts to is uh, benzyl dihyde and in mdma it's piperinol so those are kind of the three vocs that the scientific community at this point has established as you know the odorant that the dog is alerting to but yet we see handlers all the time in their testimony in court cases officer what is the odorant that your dog is trained to or alerts on uh, related to marijuana, uh, as an example, and the number one answer given is THC. Yeah, yeah. All right. And well, first of all, my question is: Well, <clears throat> what what peer-reviewed scientific uh, published study has shown that that's what the dog is alerting to? The answer is there is none. Yeah. Right. So. Um, but what has become an issue is we have the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation had issued a memo saying that um, CBD um, and or hemp um, has the exact, uh, it looks like, it smells like to a dog, therefore uh, a dog who's trained on marijuana shouldn't Uh, be a basis for probable cause within their their state because the hemp and CBD CBD. are identical to marijuana. And, you know, of course, who picked up on that? The defense attorneys and then the Court of Appeals and all of that. And I I actually had reached out to the SBI and I said, you know, can you just tell me where exactly that came from? Yeah. Right. Is it anecdotal? Because if it's anecdotal, we shouldn't be putting that out yeah. in a public statement because we don't know. And in fact, um, it appears, and I don't want to speak for them, yeah. but um, FIU has a study that's going to be coming out uh, related to that very issue. Uh, and I think the scientific data, once it's um, uh, published, should be coming out here in the next um, very soon, it sounded like to me. Um that that there's a very strong, reasonable uh, conclusion that the dogs are not alerting to THC, um, and therefore um, the dogs can distinguish between CBD and hemp and marijuana. Um, so, you know, looking forward to that yeah. study to come yeah. out. But my point is, and my broader point is, is that sometimes our handlers step outside of the scope of their expertise and start guessing and then we start getting bad case law yeah so i guess i'll just interrupt you real quick it when in any because you're you are an expert in court and we've all uh you know testified and there's going to be some you know uh, i hate to say smart defense attorneys because i don't believe they really exist but a clever defense attorney who might uh <laughs> might be able to to come up with something that is going to stump a handler maybe a question like that or whatever as a as an expert in in testimony, what do you advise a handler when you know if they if they ask that question you don't know the answer? 
I mean, my advice is to simply say, I'm not sure of that, you know, here's, you know, and not, not get boxed into an answer. Um, what would you tell a handler? Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. And, you know, if you don't know, don't guess, right? Say, yeah. I don't know, or that's beyond the scope of my expertise. Yeah. Um, and, you know, hopefully the uh, prosecutor will have awoken from their slumber, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, get some objections yeah. in there after that. But, yeah, that's the correct answer, I, I believe. You know, and, if you and don't I, know, don't guess. Yeah. And I say that because I've seen that over the years where handlers get led down that path of of not wanting to look like they're the complete expert in, in what their dog smells and how the dog smells. Is it a thousand is the nose a thousand times better, or a million times better? Is it this or that? Asking all those things. But I think the same handler, if on the stand if they said, Well, you have a dog and he's, you know, detected this odor or whatever, explain to me how his spleen works. Well, I have no idea. You know, I don't know what's going on. Exactly. And you would have no problem saying, I, I don't know how the, all the insides of them work, but I think sometimes we get boxed into wanting to be, you know, not look like we don't know what we're talking about. But uh, if if it's a scientific question that maybe you've you know been a handler for a couple of years or maybe a handler for 20 years and you just never really got into the science part of it, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, I really don't know. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. Um, because the last thing you want to do is guess, be wrong, and then you have bad case yeah. law, which is, you know, and that's what we don't want to happen with this fentanyl. So if we start kind of getting back to this um, overall broader topic on fentanyl, right, the question becomes, well, fentanyl isn't necessarily uh, contraband because people could possess it legally with a prescription and whatnot. And so this question, um, I had had prior to um, our email chain that w uh, was going back and forth, yeah. had a large Southern California agency reach out and ask that very question, said, hey, we are getting a lot of pressure from our administration um, because of this fentanyl issue that, you know, they, they want us to train our dogs in fentanyl. And um, my initial response was, okay, first things first, let's reach out to our prosecutor. Yeah. And then what I started to do is reaching out to as many um, trainers and experts within the industry across the United States. Because I just, uh, you know, I really had not given that much thought until that question came in. And I reached out to defense witness experts, you know, people who would be going up against um, against us in court and wanted to get their opinion and, you know, like where would they go if, if we yeah. did this and, and all that. And so, um, in the end, we pretty much came to the same conclusion, which was check with your prosecutor. You know, if your prosecutor is not willing to prosecute, um, then, you know, what would be the point? Yeah. Yeah. So that's number one. Um, and the agency got back and they had reached out to their prosecutor. And again, this is a pretty large Southern California um, agency and their prosecutor um, basically came to the conclusion, said, listen, this is a serious problem with uh, within our jurisdiction, this overdose death, uh, many of them resulting from these fentanyl uh, poisonings. And we believe that there's so few people that could in fact 
um, possess fentanyl legally, yeah. that if a dog was trained or imprinted in the odor, we'll just say imprinted, yeah. um, uh, trained or imprinted in the odor of fentanyl, and that dog alerted, we believe that we would make a strong argument that that is probable cause. You know, so we go back to, okay, well, what the heck is probable cause? Well, um, probable cause, very simply stated, is is there a fair probability that contraband or evidence of a crime would be present in a particular search area? Um, and there's a whole host of cases. Probable cause is actually much lower than most police officers think that yeah, it is, yeah. right? Um, what the Supreme Court said um, is that as the name ver- as the name implies we are talking about probabilities yeah um, they said this in illinois versus gates 1983 and dealing with probable causes the very name implies we deal with probabilities they are not technical they are factual and practical considerations of everyday life on which reasonable and prudent men not legal technicians act so it always comes down to is there a fair probability that evidence or uh, contraband or evidence of a crime will be found in a search area. So this particular prosecutor said, we believe that because the percentage of people possessing legally possessing fentanyl is so minor that the dog alert in a dog trained or imprinted on uh, the odor of fentanyl would still be a basis for probable cause, and we would make that argument. So we have a prosecutor who is on board. They've thought out yeah. um, kind of their legal arguments, um, you know, if this were to uh, to play out within their their uh, justice system there. And so that's really where we're at. Um, that's the first step. And then the next step is, OK, so our prosecutors on board. Well, what's the procedure for then training these yeah. dogs safely, um, you know, for the handler and the dog? Yeah. Right. And so um, we had had some pretty heavy discussion about this uh, while I was over at the California Narcotic Canine Association conference uh, just this past January uh, because the CNCA was looking at adding uh, fentanyl as an odor for their narcotic certification. So, which is, um, I think, a good thing if we're going to uh, imprint our dogs on these odors well we need certifying authorities who have um, a certification in process which um you know there's there's not many that do so that was a good thing that at least cnca was uh you know had the forethought that okay well let's let's at least add this and how are we going to do this safely and what are going to be the protocols set in place and so um what we're looking at is is um we this is going to be the next debate that comes up and um, I'm not sure where this is going to land, but the, the the true question that the handlers need to keep in mind is how am I going? If I'm going to do this, my agency's on board, my prosecutor's on board. How are we going to do this uh, safely so that we don't have any um, accidental yeah. overdoses with our handlers and our dogs? So what CNCA was looking at was uh, doing a soak um, that was a, a fentanyl soak that was uh, inside a TAD, a training aid delivery device, mm-hmm. and um, using that as their certification. And uh, so they were kind of going down that road, which, you know, at first uh, first impression, 
um, I'm like, yeah, I think that this is uh, sounds like a great uh, great way to yeah. do that and make sure that our dogs are uh, being proofed off of the actual tad itself. And um, as long as we're doing our proofing and that kind of stuff, then I, you know, it's, it's like any other odor. We just yeah. need to do it safely. Uh, and then some discussion came up with um, some of the PhDs who are uh, way smarter than <laughs> I uh, um, about, well, okay. Um, is a soak actual real substance and that the scientific community has always recommended for certification purposes that um, the substance being used for certification be real. Yeah. So I think that what we're seeing is that's going to be the next argument that comes up here um, as to what's the definition of a real substance. You yeah. know, are we splitting hairs here? You know, um, we need to do right by our community to do what we can to keep fentanyls yeah. off the streets and to keep people, you know, as best we can from overdosing on this stuff. But at the same point, um, we want to do, um, yeah. we really do want to do it the correct way. So what is the correct way? I mean, without, without a soak, um, well, and I think I think you bring there's a there's a big point there that I just don't want to I don't want to miss. Uh, uh, and I'm sure you guys discussed it at nauseum there too. Is that whatever you're soaking it with? Because I know, like uh, our narcs, uh, they're seeing a lot more you know pill form fentanyl, and I know it takes you know a, a couple of grains of fentanyl and one of the pills to, to be deadly or whatever. So, if if you're using the pills that your agency has seized. And you're doing that as either even a training aid or soaking them or whatever. Um, the amount of actual real fentanyl in there is going to be, as I understand it, fairly minute. So then you have all the binders and the cutting agents in there. And then it goes back to your original point of what is the actual odor in that that we're training on. Am I kind of correct on all that? Yeah. Oh, exactly. That is exactly correct. And... You know, then we need to ensure, you know, then we go back to our, our training, right? We need to ensure that our dogs are proofed off of these cutting agents and what are the known cutting agents and are they proofed off of them? So um, this definitely adds some, um, not impossibility for no. sure by any means, but certainly adds a little bit more complexity to our training uh, and our training aids and um, ensuring that we are, uh, routinely doing our proofings and showing that in our training records um, that we have distractor odors within our training areas and that we're showing that within our our training records and then you know really this turns into a much broader discussion um, you know are we storing our training aids properly and you know yeah. what is that and what yeah. you know um, I just think so uh, that, I just when you when we get into these pills you know I know there's an agency that I've worked with for a long long time and they've they have uh, trained a lot over the years um, on MDMA, and they were one of the first ones that I saw do it. And they did; they, I think they did it very well, and the dogs are good on it. But I know more than once in training with them, like I put out uh, baby aspirin one time, and it's about 50-50 on which dogs would work it and which one wouldn't. And anecdotally, I can't tell you scientifically what why. Anecdotally, I think it was the binders and whatever was holding the pills together, or you know something very similar. That the, that the dogs had picked up on. It was about half the dogs would, would work kind of any pill. So 
Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but I just think it's a, a, a big thing of caution, you know, when you're when you're going to introduce an odor to start thinking about things like that. Yeah, no, I agree 100 percent, you know, and 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 that that becomes that really becomes the issue as to what exactly are we what what odor or odors exactly are we I'm using air quotes imprinting or training our dogs um, training our dogs on and we want to make sure we're doing things right and that we're not going to develop problems yeah not just from a training aspect or a certification aspect uh, but for uh, or an operational aspect but um, from a legal aspect also, you yeah. know, at some point does this come back and, and haunt us? So these are all things that really need, uh, really need to be considered in my opinion before we, you know, once we've got the prosecutor on board, okay, what exactly are the protocols? Cause this is kind of new territory. This is, you know, uh, we all know cocaine, heroin, uh, uh meth, MDMA, yeah. right. That, those, those are dangerous, yeah. right. But they, they do not bring with it the the level of danger that fentanyl would to the hammer yeah. or to yeah. uh to the dog so uh, the next is is can we do this um um establishing protocols where we could do this from a um correctly um but also from a safe safe standpoint and then how are we going to store these because again you know at some point we need to store this yeah. right and so we want to make sure that it's stored in a manner um, and consistent with um, kind of the scientific protocols, uh, but also in a manner that is safe, you know, so that, you know, they doesn't have an exposure, you know, yeah. from wherever it's being stored. So yeah. these are all things that, that I think handlers need to consider. I don't think that we necessarily have the right answers at this particular point. That was my we next question know, is, you know, we're, we're raising a whole lot of stuff, and I know you've got your, your finger on the pulse of all this. Have you seen an agency yet that uh, you think this could probably become, you know, the standard or at least a base standard to start working with, with how they're doing it? Well, what we do know is we we know that there are some um, some of our our friends who have helped us out with the uh, mimic training aids and um, mimic odors, yeah. uh, whatever you want to pseudo. Yeah. You know, that's the questionable term also, but, um, have, have kind of stepped up and, and really, and I don't, I don't subscribe not uh, supporting one or the other, yeah. um, anything like that, but we know, um, at least we're starting to see like precision explosive does have, um, a, uh, fentanyl training, uh, training aid that is out there. Um, I don't know, you know, uh, there is a large, uh, Midwest agency that have, used those um and speaking with the lead trainer there um as you know they said they have had very very good success yeah yeah. um success with that so um that's a safe um uh, a safe training aid um they've uh, precision explosive made it into a, a safe training aid and so they started imprinting their dogs this is one of um uh, this agency is a very successful Midwestern agency. Runs a very, very good parcel interdiction program. Yeah, and it sounds like they are um, their dogs are are just killing it. Yeah. So yeah, it sounds like um, most of their seizures are are fentanyl or fentanyl related at least. Yeah. No. Exactly. So I think it can be done, and I think uh, I think the way they went about it ultimately 
uh, in the end was is the the correct way for what we know right now. And we all know sci- if if science is worth its salt, it's, it is always evolving because there's always new uh, challenges that yeah. come up, things yeah. like that. So I, I think um, I, I think uh, doing it in the manner that they did, which they uh, just happened to use. Um, and again, I'm not supporting yeah, one. Yeah one over another, but, you know, they happen to use precision explosives. Their dogs um, uh, it were imprinted, trained on that odor, and they are getting huge seizures operationally. So that tells us, at least anecdotally, that that is working. Yeah, and for so, our listeners, I'm, I'm working on bringing that agency on the show here, too. So that'll probably be the part two of the fentanyl to talk about uh, how it's working in the field for our listeners. Yeah, and I, I think they've, I think they've thought, they, I, I think, think they've really thought in it through, yeah. and they have prosecutors that are on board, um, which is always very, very helpful. So it always goes back to that, you know. Yeah. If your prosecutors aren't aren't going to be on board to begin with, um, then you know. And that's the that's the exact same answer, and I know you get the question a lot. I do a lot, um, as all these states are starting to go to either uh, medical marijuana or recreational marijuana. Um, I fought common sense a lot here the first couple of years we had uh, medical marijuana in Colorado. And then it finally dawned on me that, you know, you're fighting with a prosecutor who a lot of prosecutors simply, they just want to get rid of a case. They don't care if it's, yeah. if it's dropped or prosecuted, it's off their desk. They don't care. And it's a whole lot easier to drop it. So um, the, what I tell everybody is, you know, whether it's the fentanyl question or the marijuana question or any other question, the answer is going to come from your prosecutor, whether you like it or not, the prosecutor is going to decide uh, how you're going to train your dog. No, you're absolutely correct. I mean, the case law on the marijuana, um, with the exception of Colorado and Oregon, um, is still very good for canine handlers. Yeah. Um, even California, Nevada, um, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, you know, most of the states, even here in Illinois, where I'm from, um, we've had a couple, um, you know, we're a recreational marijuana state now as well. And even our courts have said the courts that have uh, have upheld marijuana trained dogs. Interestingly, they'll say the odor of marijuana to the human officer. Uh, most of the time is no longer a basis for probable cause. However, the odor of marijuana to a trained narcotic dog, that still is a basis for probable cause. And most of the courts have founded that opinion on the fact, two things, uh, but, but the foundation is, we go back to what is probable cause. Is there a fair probability that contraband or evidence of a crime will be found, right? So what the courts have said is, um, most officers cannot detect the odor of heroin. They can't detect the odor of cocaine. They can't detect the odor of methamphetamines. They can't detect the odor of MDMA. They can detect the odor of marijuana. But the dogs can detect all those other odors. So even if it's a dog trained on marijuana and marijuana is legal in the state, there is a fair probability that any one of those other illegal odors would still be present and therefore they're upholding the dog alert yeah you know so but again whether the prosecutor is familiar with that or not or even cares really is 
the deciding factor exactly. as to whether these dogs should or should not be trained on marijuana. And that'll be the exact same recipe for fentanyl, you know, as we kind of figure it, this out. So. Exactly. The last thing uh, I just exactly. want to touch on real quick is um, thresholds. And I know that's come up. I, I know we talked about that when we first started dealing with marijuana. Well, you know, we'll just train our dogs on a pound or more or, and then same with fentanyl is that, you know, no one can legally justify having, you know, a pound of fentanyl or whatever. So um, how do you feel about, you know, attempting to train thresholds? Have you seen it successful? What's your opinion on that? So I'm still kind of on the fence on that one, to be quite honest with you. But um, I think um, when we look at uh, Dr. Nathaniel Hall uh, down at Texas Tech uh, Canine Olfaction Laboratory, he's done a lot of work on that. Um, and uh, threshold issues there. Um, I don't think, at least personally, I don't think that I have read enough uh, peer-reviewed scientific studies that would con convince me one way or another that the threshold issue can or cannot be done. Uh -huh. um, but I, I definitely think that we should be researching that, um, yeah. at least from a scientific s standpoint. I think that that deserves... Um, a lot more uh, research and a lot more um, attention be you know for this very reason yeah. because our dogs are extraordinary and what what I think is going to come out and I again I don't want to speak for FIU because uh, they have done tremendous work down there but I think um, what we're going to see come out of this uh, study this marijuana hemp study is that our dogs noses are so extraordinary that we can touch the iceberg the tip of the iceberg um when it comes to what our dogs can and cannot do because it certainly sounds like and again i'm not speaking yeah. to them but it sounds like they the um this fiu study is going to reveal that lab from a laboratory standpoint they cannot or it would be very difficult to even tell chemically the difference between marijuana and hemp but yet the dogs can, can tell the difference yeah so um it comes back to that coming back to your question on thresholds i think it i think there's a very strong possibility that our dogs can i just before I, yeah. I, I make a better definitive uh, opinion on it, I'd like to see some further research on it. I know Dr. Hall uh, down there at um, Texas Tech has done some extraordinary work already on, um, uh, on the threshold yeah. issues. So yeah. I'd be definitely looking forward to see, you know, the scientific community kind of pushing, pushing that or giving that a little bit more attention. Yeah. And I guess a good way to kind of wrap this up is, you know, we've talked a lot about the scientific community um you know dr furton uh dr nathan hall uh, those guys are are they teach for us at hits they're um easy to get a hold of and talk to and kind of get involved with uh you know and i just point that out that uh we as a and myself included i think a lot of times over the years of the whole time i've been doing this i think we've given kind of lip service to the science and i think just in the last 
you know, whatever, four, five, six, seven years, I think we really are, as dog handlers, paying a lot more attention to the real science part of it. And I think, you know, anything we could do to help them um, as far as, you know, getting them dogs to, to, to research, uh, do do the exercises to, to, for the analysis for the dogs, whatever. The more dogs we can help them with, the more handlers and everything, the better everybody's going to be. And uh, I just, if you're in any of these areas or check with your local uh, colleges and see if they've got anything going on. But I think it's a good partnership. Um, everyone that I've dealt with in that scientific community is on our side, meaning that meaning that they're pro-using dogs. Not necessarily they're pro-cop or anti-cop. I think they, they just, they're very much in, what I've uh, seen is that they're very much into We'll just let the science take us where it takes us, and then we can, um, you know, give you guys advice as to how to use your dogs better with that scientific answer. Um, I haven't met any of them who are looking for ways to give information to defense attorneys to eliminate the use of dogs. I agree with you. I, I agree. I think that these are these people are such valuable assets uh, to us um, and to our industry, and I think when you start talking to um, Dr. Ken Fortin or you talk to uh, Dr. Hall and uh, you listen to them speak, um, they really do have a absolute passion for this. And I think it's because they're, the science keeps driving them further and further yeah. into um that these that that our dogs are when they're properly trained they are in fact um the very uh best uh um olfactory detector that is known on the face of the earth so yeah, yeah. i mean um and they, they cannot uh, i was just sitting in a, a dr Furton's class and and what fascinated me is i ne- never actually had heard him say this before and i've sat through sat through several of his classes was that he actually had kind of gotten into this. Um, and again, I don't want to speak for him, but he had gotten into this uh, field because he, he initially thought he could um, either develop or that the laboratory instruments uh, would prove to be far superior yeah. than, yeah. Uh, than the dogs. And he said he has been proven time and time and time again, wrong that the yep. dogs are just far superior. And I think that, um, and that drives them towards um, uh, drives them towards the science behind it, and that then ultimately the byproduct is is, is good things for us. Yes, yeah, it validates so what we're doing. One hundred percent. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. Well, as always, Michael, I, I appreciate that. You, I know you're busy, and and I think this is a real relevant topic. And for the listeners, like I said, I have a few other people that I'll probably bring on just to kind of round this out. But if we were going to sum this up, I guess, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you know, I think your answer is it's still an evolving answer. Um, or, or how would, if I called you and you were going to give me a, a one minute answer on should I train my dog on fentanyl or not, um, what would you tell me? Um, I, 100%. It is yes. evolving. But the very first thing is, is check with your prosecutor. prosecutor. That would always going to be my for, my my uh, short answer is yeah. check with your prosecutor. And given what your prosecutor says, then, you know, if the answer is, yeah, they think they have, they'll make an argument. The next question is, okay, let's, let's develop a, a, a good protocol. Yeah. 
um, uh, and a safe protocol uh, to get the dogs trained up on it. Yep, that's that's the answer I've been given to for for a while. I was saying don't do it, and now it's uh, like you say. I think it's it's become a like you could almost argue a public health emergency. So I, I, I agree one hundred percent, and I think our politicians. <clears throat> are are going to start pushing this even more yeah. because they're they are um they're having to answer to their constituents and this is a this is like you said it's a public health emergency yeah. so yeah. i agree well thanks i appreciate you coming on and uh we'll be uh doing a lot of regular shows with you i know uh, we'll be doing another update uh with some other cases coming up real soon and uh appreciate everything i appreciate it jeff thanks so much thanks take care All right, so that's going to wrap up this episode of our part one, part two uh, fentanyl episodes. Next week, I have Gary Haddon coming on. He's going to talk about uh, stuff that they're doing operationally in Indianapolis. Gary's uh, been around for a long time, trained a lot of dogs, and he's been doing uh, fentanyl stuff for quite a bit now. Worked with his DAs, figured out uh, the best way that that, that he came up with to imprint it. And it's uh, having good success for his agency. So next week I'll bring him on and we'll talk a little bit about what they're doing out in the field. And as always, I like to remind everybody that HITS this year will be in Scottsdale, which is the Phoenix area, in August. If you go to hitsk9.net, you'll see all of our instructors. We've got great instructors, adding more all the time. Um, a huge vendor hall, biggest vendor hall you're ever going to see with all of the different uh, products that you're interested in. You get to meet the vendors and talk to them personally. And then also today, I want to remind everybody that uh, for the first year, if uh, you're a civilian, as HITS has always been for law enforcement, and it will stay that way. So HITS will be for sworn law enforcement always. But before HITS this year, a few days before it, in the same hotel, the Westin, we're going to start a new conference for civilians. So if you listen to this podcast and you do sport dog work or nose work or anything else, and you're interested in training dogs... Um, but have not been able to come to HITS because you're not law enforcement, Smart Dog is for you. So if you go to mysmartdog.net, you'll see everything we have uh, in store for our civilian listeners and our civilian friends. So mysmartdog.net will be the civilian end of our training conference this year. And then, of course, hitsk9.net is for all of our law enforcement partners. Hopefully uh, everybody enjoys this topic. If you have any questions on it, as always, just email me, jeff at hitsk9.net. Thanks and be safe out there.